0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton.
1: You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome back to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nick Ashburn. I'm
2: Catherine Klein.
1: And I am delighted to introduce our next guest. I'm really excited about this segment because I've been an admirer of their their work. Um, We are going to be welcoming Dina Kohler, who's the Executive Director of Sustainable Investing at UBS Asset Management. Dina leads the global sustainable equities team, uh, their impact measurement research project, and has primary responsibility over the overall product positioning and development of sustainable equity strategies and ESG environmental sustainable or environmental social and governance database development. Dina, welcome to Dollars and Change.
0: Thank you. It's Great to be here.
1: Yes. So uh, let's start at the very beginning.
2: Um, Are you going to sing, Nick?
1: <laughs> no, but we, if you want to get into Sound of Music, we definitely can. There, you have a link there, too. So <laughs> careful what you wish for, Gavin. Uh, Sorry, Dina. Um, but let's let's talk. I, I love your background, and I love how you're applying it to sort of this emerging field of impact investing. So can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you got to UBS?
0: Mm, okay. And actually, Wharton plays a part in my story, in my journey. <laughs> yeah. So... Gosh, well, you know, I had started all this um, thinking and working on how do corporations do something good for the environment, actually back in the early 90s when I became environmental manager at Tetra Pak in Hungary. That's a whole other chapter, but <laughs> this succinctly said, I learned the hard lessons of what it means to do this work in a company, and that has informed the rest of my journey, which became a lot of, mm, how could I have done that job better? So I did a couple more degrees and then realized, you know, the real issue here at hand is in my job at Tetra Pak, we're talking about packaging waste management, we're still talking about it today.
1: Nice. Yeah, we, our last, our last uh, guest was actually from a company called Covanta and we were talking exactly about sustainable waste management.
0: Yeah, we haven't quite solved that one. No. Yeah, so anyway, it's, that's multi-decade effort, obviously. So, you know, the the whole question that then started to bug me was, Yeah, why would we do all this packaging waste management? Why does it really matter? And we can do it for the pandas and the polar bears, you know, and all the endangered species, but if I don't make it human, I'm not going to reach people. So I realized, okay, this is anthropogenic. I need to figure out how to touch humans and get humans to really care about this. And then I understood this whole notion of environmental risk was kind of a, a thing floating around in discussions in the finance sector at the UNEP UNEPFI um, meetings, so I'm thinking to myself, okay, you know, how could I figure out how environmental risk, however defined, might impact financial risk? So I go off and wander and try to find, you know, a place where I could study this. Wharton came up, by the way, as a potential PhD home, as did Harvard School of Public Health. And I said to myself, I have to go to Harvard School of Public Health. I have to understand the fundamentals of biology, physiology, how humans respond to environmental change. Because later on, we're going to translate that into economic impacts, which is how business people think, right? Mm -hmm. So if I went to Wharton, I'd be doing kind of the next step of what I would be trying to understand. Let me get to the root of the matter. So I end up doing a Ph.D. at Harvard School of Public Health in Capital Markets and Environmental Risk, the topic and it's on the basis of that that I, I started to appreciate and understand all the signs behind environmental risk assessment, which is essentially what I'm loving today at UBS. Fast forward, did a postdoc at Wharton um, at the Center for Risk with Howard kuhn and then Paul Kleindorfer. Yeah, my colleagues. Yeah, and then also with Eric Orts. So I know those guys very well. They're great. Yeah, yeah, super and um, then ended up going to the EPA, managing a research program in corporate environmental management at the then still functioning Office of Research and Development. Mm. And then made my way back into the corporate sector via consulting. So ended up at Deloitte for a couple of years and the conference board. Now, because I'm you know a Ph.D., you end up doing research and writing white papers. So I've been doing a lot of that. At Deloitte, it was all about ESG materiality. It's in the context of that research that I met my current boss, Bruno Bertacci, who's the lead portfolio manager on our team at UBS Asset Management and Global Sustainable Equities. And I'm interviewing him and asking him, you know, what's materiality from the perspective of finance and investors? You know, it's all about valuation. Okay, all right, let's think about that. And then I came to UBS. And, well, you know, and here it's been the wonderful Opportunity to actually apply my dissertation, which almost never happens. <laughs> so, I'll stop Catherine, have you applied your path.
1: dissertation? I think uh, you have.
0: Sorry, uh, the, oh, Nick, I,
2: is, uh, Nick is asking me if I've applied my dissertation. That is, uh, that is not an easy question. I, I, yeah, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> maybe we'll talk about that at the final half hour. Uh, uh, Dina, I'd love to uh, have you unpack a few things you said. Um, kind of translate that in uh, for folks who don't know some of this lingo mm. um and then we'll then i I know that Nick and I'll have lots of follow up questions for you um you talked so the the two places where i'm thinking let's get a little bit more concrete uh number one, you talk about the link between environmental risk and financial risk and yeah. and evaluating this for companies mm. so you know what it seems to me at the most basic level um is what you're saying, you know, for listeners, again, who are not in this field, but, you know, I'm hoping you'll correct me and and anybody who's got, uh, if I have a misjudgment, um, is, wow, these companies that are major polluters uh, in one way or another actually turn out to not be great financial investments. Uh, They, uh, you know, they experience costs uh, one way or another uh, as a result, presumably, of this Uh, their pollution of their lack of environmental sustainability. And in the long run, this means that investing in those companies uh, is not a great idea, uh, because they're going to be suffering financial, you know, as I said, financial uh, costs um, to their performance.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Is that... Is that accurate? Is that the fundamental? Is that when we say find the link between financial risk and uh, I mean environmental risk and financial risk? Is that is that the core idea that we should have in our minds?
0: It is the core. There's a couple of intermediate steps if you think about it this way. So, you know, let's say a company pollutes, um, let's just think of Hudson, right? So I live in New York, the Hudson River, and all the pollution, I'm not going to name a company, but all the pollution that has gone into the Hudson River. Mm hmm. So then you got a, a bunch of scientists running around and measuring, you know, water quality and sediment quality and saying, oh, Lord, we have a lot of um, this type of uh, chemical in the sediment, and oh, my, we can measure it in fish, too. And people eat fish. Hmm, now we have to have fish warnings. You can't eat Hudson Valley or Hudson River fish anymore, Right. So the intermediate steps are are, company does something and it has an adverse effect on the environment, by which I mean not just water, Mm -hmm. but everything that lives in the environment, including you and me. Then you have either a legal proceeding or you will have a regulatory proceeding, Mm -hmm. right? And if there's a law prohibiting company from doing this, then, you know, the enforcement kicks in and there are fines. Fact of the matter is, as a former EPA person, those fines are often not very big. Mm-hmm. However, in the Hudson River situation, high-profile, big company, big deal, huge cleanup costs, yeah, it's costly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So when people say ESG and the data that we as investors might be looking at when we think about their sustainability and is it this a risky company or not, that's the risk side, right? That makes sense, right? This is risk. Downside risk. So, do we invest in a company? Yes or you no? Know. They say that ESG data is backward-looking, and I dispute that because hmm. these are long-term impacts. Many pollutants, chemicals, in the environment for decades. We made them, you know, bulletproof, and they travel up the food chain. And all this stuff takes time. And as you have scientists getting smarter and smarter about measuring environmental risk. And health risks then there's action so what I'm trying to say is it's not like company does something and boom it shows up in financials there's a couple of steps and social awareness sure and newspaper articles you know New York Times front page that's the worst case scenario for any company right and then it escalates and it goes through this multi-stakeholder action process whereby at some point either this thing gets banned or huge penalties, or people say we don't want it anymore, shut down the plant.
1: So Dina, I'm struck, what I love is I'm hearing the passion come out of your, uh, over the radio, which is great. Um, And this is also very sophisticated work. We're not talking about, oh, we've got a few data points, let's put that into the model and go. This Mm -hmm. is very sophisticated work. Why is UBS interested in this? A client. A client. Tell us more. A key more.
0: client, yes. Yeah. So a key Dutch um, pension fund came to us. Now we're going to jump to, I think where you're going is impact. Is that correct?
1: I'm just more interested in, like, what's the business case? Why Why would ah. UBS go, like, hire someone like you to do this, you know, extensive type of work?
0: Because, from the in the end of the day, it's all about us differentiating from our competitors. It's all about us and in our team getting to the core of what is the value of a company so i'm in active equities and our job and the job of our analyst platform is to identify companies where there is quote uh, an attractive valuation by which i mean there is an alpha okay this is a company by today it's going to grow and the market doesn't see the value that we see in the company that's the alpha so our job is to muster all the information and knowledge we can to actually come up with a differentiated thesis about why this is a good investment. And the key word is differentiated, not what everybody else is doing, you know, looking at the quarterly reports or the 10K, doing more. And so, as we have been doing this, and my boss has been doing this for over 10 years, UBS has actually been doing this since 1997. By this, I mean running a, a, a sustainable equity fund. As we have been doing this for a while, And the word is getting out within our group in active equities that we add value. When we look at additional ESG non-financial material factors, there is a growing appreciation for what it is that this information provides. In addition to all the info that an analyst looks at anyway, that's the business proposition. Alpha potential, volatility reduction. Ie in the portfolio volatility of returns go down in the portfolio, and then the clients, and we can talk about that a little bit.
2: So, so at the uh, uh, again to ask some of these these uh, basic questions, what what you're what I I think you're saying is uh, at uh, or, or you know again what listeners may be thinking is huh? So I think she's saying that I can invest in a sustainable equities fund. I'm going to invest in companies that are, you know, better for the environment. And I'm going to make as uh, strong returns as, if I as I would make if I didn't, you know, care about the environment. Is that the is a uh, or you know maybe even better returns? Yes. That's that's the core. So yes. yes, okay. There's
0: the potential there. Yes.
2: Okay, and I got to ask you one vocabulary word because um, we hear it a lot, and uh, and uh, and and I want to make sure that our listeners know know how you're using the term, and that is material or materiality. Oh, right. You did a good job describing alpha. Tuck that right in. That was helpful. Um, materiality. I'm glad you're saying, you know, like, I'm really glad you're saying, ooh, because I was like, am I really going to ask this, this very basic?
0: It is so basic and important. That's the question I ended up asking at Deloitte because everybody was talking about materiality, but nobody was really explaining it. So I'm going to go back to what I said earlier. Materiality doesn't just appear out of the blue. Ta-da, it's material. And it's never 100% material. So if you do your homework and you read what the SEC actually says about materiality, there's nothing about it is material, likelihood to be material to the company as determined by the CFO and the auditor. So likelihood, likelihood. to be material
2: it means there's, this, there's something going on that's likely to affect the financial performance of the company. Precisely. Okay.
1: And by the CFO or the auditor, wow, I didn't realize it was that specific. Pretty much. Wow.
0: Yeah.
2: So it's not necessarily we know for sure. Somebody thinks it is.
0: Exactly. So likelihood. And this Mm -hmm. is where, you know, what I did at Wharton at the risk center, it's all about probability, right? They're all into that. Not probability, uncertainty, all these great terms. Likelihood, by definition, is some sort of probability of something happening, right? And so what the auditor is worried about and what we are worried about is that the company is not telling us that they have an issue that could actually drag down, let's say, earnings, profitability, or margins. It's a risk. So materiality is trying to assess risks to the company, both because of what the company is doing. And now we get to our area, sustainability or pressures from the outside on the company. And that's the story about the Hudson River.
1: Got it. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. And we are speaking with Dina Kohler, who is the Executive Director of Sustainable Investing at UBS Asset Management. And I should really say, we're not just talking to Dina. You are getting a master (laughs) class from Dina on on materiality, on alpha, on how you think about um, environmental factors that may be affecting uh, a company's financial performance and their risk.
2: So, Tina, can you, uh, as as we continue the masterclass, and we get to be uh, students or ciphers for the the, the 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 students, the listeners, the folks listening, we hope they like that we like this. As a professor, we like to be learning a lot. Um, I would love you to talk about how you see uh, ESG investing, uh, you know, investing using ESG standards, uh, and perhaps compare it to impact investing. Mm. Mm-hmm. And is there, you know, Ed, you described ESG, you said some people think of ESG data as backward looking, you mm. don't. yeah. Um, but I think of ESG data often as uh, alerting us to the negatives, alerting us to the harms, the, the ways in which a company is doing things badly Um you know, has poor performance and less about the ways in which a company is forward – well, I don't want to say forward-looking, doing positive things, good for the environment, good for employees, you know, um, good good in terms of addressing social and environmental issues. I think of that as the impact investing and I'm a little fuzzier about mm, does ESG data direct us there or does it direct us, you know, to preventing harm?
0: Mm. So, given what we were just talking about, materiality, I Mm -hmm. think we can kind of close that by saying ESG is indicative of potential materiality risk, okay? So, and it's really, when you think about it, and, you know, we've been building our own internal database, Mm -hmm. and since I was at the EPA, EPA is all about risk prevention, right? Risk to the environment, risk to public health. That's the mandate, normally, of the EPA. So... um, so, ESG tells you about operations. And because of all the issues, you know, we had in the 90s, Nike and all the other guys, and in and the, and the apparel industry, it's not just ops anymore, operations, efficiency, it's also your supply chain. So, you are now held responsible as a company, not just for what you do, but from where you get your ingredients. You are. Um, assessed in terms of how well you manage the risks inherent to your technology, your ops, and then what your, your supply chain. Okay, that's ESG, really, when you look at the data, mm-hmm. risk management. Are these guys good at risk management? Okay. Now, impact, as we have been thinking about it, and this is because of the work we've been doing with the Dutch Pension Fund, is about the opportunity set and the dutch came up with a great word which is not just the opportunity but solutions solutions to some of the big problems that we as humans face on this planet climate change yes very live right especially this year climate change and air pollution go hand in hand because it's the burning of fossil fuel right there's a bunch of air emissions that come out that kill people who breathe dirty air for example okay We were also looking at water, access to clean water, and health, and then food security. And this is where the research started around these concepts back when I joined UBS in 2015. So when I said I picked up my dissertation and dusted it off, what I'm saying is that I'm bringing the science of environmental risk, which is really the science of environmental change, and human change right human health change i'm bringing that into how we think about how could we evaluate a company that sells wind turbines around the world it's public equity it's not private equity and can we figure out you know by how much does carbon, do- carbon emissions go down that's pretty easy more people are doing this and carbon is a global pollutant so it doesn't really matter where it's emitted or avoided So that's an easy proposition. You can translate, you know, wind turbine into carbon emissions avoided because you're providing clean energy to the grid and you're displacing, you're removing dirty fossil fuel energy. Now, when it gets to air pollution, and this is where Harvard School of Public Health is the key ingredient. And so UBS spo- um, issued a sponsored research project together with Harvard on this, for example. So, uh, reducing air pollution, it matters if you're doing it in Beijing. So, you put your wind turbine in Beijing, huge benefit to the people living there, mm-hmm. right? You save many lives because people die of air pollution in China. About 1.4 million people die per year because of the poor air. And you're, you're preventing people from going to the hospital because they have an asthma attack or sick days because they can't breathe or mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. cardiovascular stress because of air pollution. So it's not just your lungs that suffer. It's your whole system suffers. Yeah. Okay. So the idea was to bring in science as we translated every unit of wind turbine sold around the world into an impact, a positive impact on the environment, CO2 emissions reduced, air pollution reduced, air quality goes up. People live a longer, healthier life. That's the logic. And so the beauty of it is that from my perspective as a scientist in this domain, we're actually bringing the word sustainability to sustainable investment by saying how much better off is the planet? How much better off are the people? Not just we're selling awesome stuff around the world. No, what good are you doing?
1: Mm -hmm, mm Interesting. Interesting. And so when you think think of it through that lens, while ESG equals risk management, as you mentioned, and sort of a wind turbine is does have an impact from the business itself, mm-hmm. do you also think about, like, I am using my resources more efficiently, therefore it's the win-win of both operational risk, but also has it a, a better impact on the environment, like let's say reduction in water or something like that? Yep. Okay, great. Yep.
0: And so early on in the discussions that I was starting with academics, so we teamed up with Harvard School of Public Health on the climate change air pollution impact category. For water, I pulled in a team from City University of New York. They built this global water risk model, published it in 2010, and then WRI, Pete Klopp, when he was at WRI, took that research and built Aqueduct. Okay, so this is kind of the core of Aqueduct, if you will. And I went to the guy. He's a wonderful Hungarian, by the way. Um, and we started thinking, okay, how could we translate you know, a water meter into water savings? And does it matter if you save water in California versus in you know, Oregon or in Maine? No. So what we're doing then, what well, I should say, in those discussions, it was very clear from the scientist standpoint, who are actually used to thinking about the risk side of the story, so they're kind of more in ESG world, if you will. You know, the bad stuff we do, and they're measuring the extent of the damage. So they're kind of risk guys. Mm-hmm. But we started to say, okay, we're going to turn those risks into opportunities for impact investing. So that was a flip for everybody in the room. But the notion that a company has both positive impacts and negative impacts, and that's where you're going, right?
1: Yeah, pretty so much.
0: The side effects, kind of, as we were starting to call it within our research group here. And Harvard had, for a couple of years, been working on Harvard School of Public Health, had been working on this concept of net positive impact, Hmm. which is what you're trying to say, which is how much good, you know, measured in human health benefits and in ecosystem environmental benefits, let's call it impact, right? How much good is the company doing via its business model, you know, the stuff it sells and where it sells it, relative to the ESG risks embedded in their operations and their supply chains. And you will never, this is Howard Kuhnreuter, I'm channeling yeah. Kuhnreuter, you're never, never going to get to zero risk. As you know, every technology has a risk. So the job of a savvy manager or manufacturing manager on the uh, on the factory floor is managing the risks of the technology and really getting it, you know, at, to almost zero. So we're never going to have a perfect, you know, 3 or 10 or whatever. We're going to have a ratio of 10 to 2 or 10 to 12 or whatever. You can think of a benefit-cost ratio. And it dawned on me when we were talking about this that this is actually the definition of a sustainable company, Hmm. a Mm -hmm. company that sells products that make people healthier, living a longer, healthier life without, you know, trashing the environment, a company that improves an environmental issue, again, without putting human lives at risk in in their manufacturing process. So it's a company. It's a net positive company. does more good than harm. Because we're never going to remove harm completely from our Mm -hmm,
2: mm -hmm.
0: industry economy. That's sort of horribly naive. You know, you and I would have to disappear off the planet to remove all human-related harm. We're never going to get to zero risk. But we might get to a better level than where we are today, such that we can continue to grow the economy, while reducing these negative ESG impacts. Got it. Uh, so,
2: Dina, you've been talking a lot about uh, ESG data and the value of you know ESG data to give us a, a window into companies, into risk, into ultimate financial performance. Um, you know, ESG is uh, stands for environmental, social, governance, uh, and there are, are lots of indicators on many of these uh, dimensions. Uh, you know i'm at I, I, listening to you I'm hearing more about e environment uh-huh. than uh-huh. s and g uh-huh. and I wonder if you could you know discuss with us and I think we know what e is but what is what are what data what kinds of issues are we looking at when we get, when we talk about s and g uh-huh. and do you find you know is the data adequate that we have on companies when it comes to s and g uh, and is it useful? Uh, to guide investment?
0: Yes and no. Or I should say no and yes. Yes, it's useful to guide investment, and that's what we've been doing within our team. So Mm -hmm. we find ES and G adds value, particularly G. Now for G, there's many different data sources, right? So it's a rich data um, field, if you will, and there's been a lot of good research done by a guy who was actually at Wharton when he was at Wharton, um, you know, about governance as a driver of financial performance. So that's one, he- of
2: these, that's one of those words that I'm going to push you to define. It's like it's, it might be even worse than materiality. Governance for people who uh, you know aren't in the know means what?
0: Ah, uh, Okay, the board. Who's mm-hmm. on the board? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we track how many women are on the board because you add one woman to a group and, and the decision-making process improves. MIT has done some cool research on that.
1: Catherine has looked into that research very deeply.
0: Uh The Center for Collective Intelligence. Yeah, though I've been looking at some of the
2: meta analyses on the the relationship between women on the board and and company performance, particularly. And I would say that you know it, what that research shows pretty exhaustively and, and conclusively is you know essentially no relationship. So you know it gets we get we hear that putting women on the board improves company performance. And the data you know the real the real rigorous academic data says mm, nah doesn't not really Ooh,
0: not interesting. really interesting. That's another whole discussion. It is whole, okay, Yeah. So, yes. So we are still looking at that under the proposition that it. actually actually would improve maybe there's 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 other dynamics going in there on there which i think kind of makes sense or independent directors or compensation or mm-hmm. you know do they have some sort of flow of uh, information on environmental and labor related issues going mm-hmm. up to mm-hmm. the board is there a responsibility independent auditor so it's the quality of management from the top and how it flows through it's also you know, again, diversity of the workforce, including women, at what levels of management. So companies are starting to disclose a lot of detail on this, which is quite inspiring, I find, because then you could do those meta-analyses, right, right. and those kind of more robust studies. So governance is, again, I would say how the, how the company is run. Mm-hmm. For social, given that we're kind of getting tight on time here, social is uh, – human resource policies, talent management, um, employee turnover, you know, accidents, incidents, so health and safety stats. Um, I particularly am a fan of near misses, which was a big deal at the, at the Wharton Risk Center. You know, that's an advance warning of something's going on in the, in the factory floor we might want to pay attention to. So there's a lot of stats there. The, the sad thing is that companies don't necessarily disclose this in their sustainability reports. so you'd have to go somewhere else, like OSHA. Mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a data-rich environment, depending on where you look. And so we have started with what companies self-disclose in their sustainability report, but are expanding beyond into various different other data sets and thinking creatively about, you know, could we start mining social data? How could we, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a whole other topic. Got it.
1: And and Dina, I know we are running low on time here, um, but We have talked a lot about the environmental and sustainability work that you're doing, but you have moved into food security Mm. and sort of, I guess if you could lump that into the future of UBS's work in this area and how you're transitioning to apply these learnings and these models to this area of food security, which also I know, Catherine, you know, you teach in your class. Right.
0: So, well, first, food security is tough, right? How are you going to wrestle this thing? And it's uh, research in, in terms of this impact measurement model we're building, right? It's, we launched it this year. We've been working on the other area since um, Feb of 2016. And um, we are zeroing in on a couple of key metrics, which is agricultural yield improvement, food loss avoided, Right. And then nutrition, and I know you had conversations earlier about nutrition and, and getting companies, particularly food manufacturers and processed food manufacturers, to you know, produce more of a nutritious food. So we're working with the University of Wageningen, which is a Dutch university quite well-known for its ag, ag economists, and again, Harvard School of Public Health on the nutrition side. So the idea is, to what degree can we actually figure out how nutritious the food is of a major food manufacturer? mm
2: mm-hmm.
0: And really getting down hardcore into what is nutrition, that's where Department of Nutrition certainly helps. And then um, identifying databases that you could galvanize, public databases. So when you ask about data, for this impact model development, it's all different data. It's not ESG at all. It's public health data, it's health data, it's environmental data, you know, publications, et cetera. It's an entirely different pool of data. And so the idea is to try to come up with a way of measuring the nutritional content or density of the products companies sell. Fascinating. And what they put on the shop shelf. So we're actually looking at retailers, this whole concept of access to nutrition, not the index, which lumps together ESG and other stuff, but a very clear, clean, trying to assess you know, how nutritious is the food that companies, retailers are putting on their shelves.
1: And so that is just fascinating to me. I mean, I'm just really looking forward to seeing that work. And, you know, I think when, Catherine, we, we can talk about this in our next segment, too. But, Dina, we would love to, I think, get you back to Wharton sometime. Yeah. I mean, we can, you know, when we think about this, this work from the Wharton social impact side, this is exactly what the holy grail is for us is, and how we want to move this forward from an academic perspective, yeah. this this combination of risk, this combination of impact And And
2: materiality. uh, And
1: materiality. And what we're talking about, like our our colleague and co-host Cheryl Coleman has now called it the omni-win. Not just the win-win, but who's the win for for all of these different stakeholders or win for different uh, areas that we're looking at. So um, thank you so much for joining us. This has been such a fun conversation. Yeah. Well,
0: thanks a lot. Looking forward to continuing it.
1: Well, we are going to take a short break, but of course, stick with us because when we get back, Catherine and I will be recapping our guests, and we'd love to hear from you. You know, whether you're talking about what's happening within the business that you're running and you know what are the challenges that you're facing, whether that's paid maternity or paid family leave, like we talked about. How are you managing the risks within the business, or what questions might you have for Catherine and me? Give us a ring at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. We're gonna take a, sh- a short break, but stick with us. This is Dollars and Change on Sirius XM one thirty two. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.